Every year, through 12 days of carnival, the city produces up to 2.6 million pounds of waste. And that is not the waste that all the city produces that ends up in the landfill through parties and curbside collection. That is just what we pick up off of the street. The city of New Orleans found 93,000 pounds of beads in our storm drain system in just five blocks along the parade route. We are a city that is threatened by climate change, by you know coastal land loss. And here we are basically supporting our biggest party with a bunch of petrochemical products that you know we just throw on the ground because it's New Orleans. We party in this city probably per capita more than any other place in America and maybe the world. We're always having a good time here and the emphasis on waste prevention is very low. Um, we have a long way to go in terms of improving how we party and the impact that it has on the environment. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Here in New Orleans, we find ourselves in the midst of the Mardi Gras season, which for the local community implies all kinds of rituals, traditions, and distractions. Mardi Gras is one of the largest celebrations in the world, sometimes referred to as the greatest free show on earth. A byproduct of this multi-week celebration season is in an inordinate amount of waste that puts a tremendous strain on our already fragile local and regional environment. Today we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with an entrepreneur and environmental activist dedicated to the Sisyphusian task of making Mardi Gras sustainable, reducing waste, recycling, and transforming the culture surrounding the literal tons of plastic beads and other throws that have become a defining feature of the parades. Brett is a New Orleans native dedicated to the future health and resilience of the city. We are pleased and proud to have him here with us today to hear about his vision for what a more sustainable New Orleans looks like. Brett, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Well, it's an honor to be here. Uh, my name is Brett Davis, and I'm the founding director of Grounds Crew, which is a New Orleans-based nonprofit. Our byline is waste prevention, recycling, and sustainable products for New Orleans events. Uh, I'd say one of my most important qualifications when working in the Mardi Gras space is that I'm a native. I'm born and raised in New Orleans. I've been going to parades since I was just a little squirt. Um, and I have a background in landscape architecture. Got my master's degree at LSU, studied a little bit there in the coastal sustainability studio, and have been working for Grounds Crew since 2019. Fantastic. Well, Brett, Grounds Crew has only been around officially for a few years, but you've made some incredible strides forward in terms of behavior change and a growing community of volunteers and institutions supporting your work. Can you give us some more background about what inspired you to form the organization and how it has evolved as a nonprofit? Sure. Um, I would say, first and foremost, I'm an unashamed tree hugger. Uh, I, I guess the question is, how did I get to be there? And actually, like a lot of people from Louisiana, I would attribute that to growing up hunting and fishing around this state. We're called the sportsman's paradise, and there's a reason for that. Um, we're surrounded by insane, beautiful, bountiful ecosystems, water, woods, you know, full of wildlife. And I was lucky enough to grow up with a cabin in the woods an hour north of New Orleans and a, a duck blind in West Louisiana where my mom's from. And I spent a lot of time in those environments and it really shaped my appreciation for the natural world. 
And then I actually was also lucky enough to backpack around uh, the world after college, working, backpacking, and just really get an appreciation for how resources are managed throughout the developing world and then comparing that to how they're managed in our country. And I would say all those things really made me uh, just appreciate you know, the importance of conservation um, for the environment. And how did that lead to the formation of Grounds Crew? Yeah, well, after I finished my uh, getting my degree in landscape architecture, I came back to New Orleans and um, was working uh, in a design business for myself doing residential architecture. Um, went out to a few parades for the first time in a few years and kind of noticed uh, how much they had dramatically changed since I was a kid and started thinking about, well, you know, I just got this degree. I'm not a scientist or an engineer by trade. I didn't feel like I could plug into the coastal issue that well. So I was like, what other issues are happening in Louisiana that are environmentally based that I might be able to make an impact with? And so the Mardi Gras issue just jumped out at me and I started doing some research, realized that not that many people were working on it. In fact, almost nobody was. And so uh, I just started send an emails, finding volunteer groups, and then everything sort of fell into place from there. And so how did, how did it actually form? How did the Grounds Crew come together? Yeah, so I actually found a group called YLC that has a um, component called YLC Recycles, and they follow a few events around in the city, um, setting up recycling bins and stations for, you know, things like races and runs and concerts. And so I volunteered with them for one, and I asked one of the coordinators if they had anything going on related to Mardi Gras, and they said, no, we don't. And we've <laughs> never even thought about it because it is such a Herculean or as you would put it, a uh, Sisyphusian task to accomplish to try to prevent waste at Mardi Gras. And so I just said, well, let me see if I can put a plan together. And um, so we got some volunteers together. We approached the Ark of Greater New Orleans, which is a local nonprofit that accepts throw donations. And by throws, I'm talking about the beads and the trinkets that are thrown off these floats. And we put together a small program that, just like everything, um, starts off very by a shoestring, and then as the years progress, it gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Fantastic. Well, Mardi Gras seems to have generated the initial impulse or inspiration for your work, but you actually now are working year-round on other events like Jazz Fest and in preparation for Mardi Gras, as well as on the design of alternative sustainable throws. So how has your mission evolved in that way? It's evolved quite a bit. I mean, when we first started looking at Mardi Gras waste and approaching it, the idea was let's capture all this stuff that is going to the landfill and see what we can reuse. Um, and so I, I should probably mention that, you know, when people think about Mardi Gras, there are different ways that Mardi Gras is celebrated. There's small neighborhood traditions. Um, there's the sort of marching parades that happen in neighborhoods. But the Mardi Gras that most people are familiar with is this big version with float parades where they throw objects for free to the crowd that watches. They throw a lot of stuff now, so much so that most of it, or a good portion of it, actually ends up as waste, uh, neglected, out in the street. And so our initial sort of angle into this was, well, how do we capture that stuff, make sure it doesn't go to the landfill, and give it to an organization to reuse it. So 
repurposing, recycling. But as I continued to do that for a couple of years, it became evident to me that really what we're doing is just sort of reusing stuff that people actually don't value very much. And so one of the big progressions that we made was transitioning from you know, waste reuse and recycling to waste prevention in the form of coming up with throws that were um, environmentally friendly and functional in some way. So things that people could throw off of a float to the parade going public, affordable, eco-friendly, but functional in some way. Products that people could use, catch at a parade one year, use, catch again the following year. For example? Oh, we've got a lot of stuff. Um, you know, our, our biggest priority going into this was, okay, we are competing with products that we import from East Asia. This is what where most parade throws come from, and they're mostly disposable plastic products made with very cheap manufacturing. So they're incredibly cheap. That's part of the issue, why there's so many. So we had to think about, okay, well, if we're going to come up with eco-friendly products, um, that we try to source from Louisiana because that's a, a great mission. What can we find that's going to be anywhere close to that sort of cost universe of disposable plastic imported products? So uh, the first items we came up with were food items, staple products, things like red beans, which is a you know a, a culinary sort of tradition here. Uh, jambalaya mix, coffee. We're one of the biggest coffee importers. Uh, in the entire world, New Orleans is. So, yeah. Um, so we, and then, you know, other products like bamboo toothbrushes that have little Mardi Gras colored bristles on them. We have soap that we get from a, a lady in Port Allen, Louisiana, who makes it in her garage. It's purple, green, and gold. So, again, a, a lot of functional products, things that can be made in bulk and given away to strangers for free during these parades. There's this idea that Mardi Gras has been the same forever in terms of these throws. Can you talk about the actual history of how throws have evolved? So I should start off by saying I'm not a Mardi Gras historian, but I've done enough research on this to know that, yes, uh, parades didn't always have throws in them. In fact, there's a, a great photograph of the Rex Parade, which is one, one of the oldest parades. I think it's the oldest continually operating parade. Um, from around 1915 um, on Canal Street, where there's a sea of people out there watching this parade go by, and everyone has their hands in their pockets. They are not expecting to catch anything. So the, the history of the throw is something that has really sort of bubbled up slowly over time, but in the 70s really exploded when we the uh, parades here realized that they could source their items from overseas and have them made out of plastic, which meant that we transitioned from things like Czechoslovakian glass beads, which were very precious and only thrown a few at a time, or doubloons, to uh, uh, just a let's see how much stuff we can fit on this float and throw in the course of two and a half hours. And so that's what got us into trouble, and that's got, gotten us into this position where we are now. Yeah, and I think uh, we can both remember as uh, little kids in terms of the, the volume and the, the character of, of the, the few beads that we might have caught and the doubloons we would have gotten, and then we were pretty happy with those. <laughs> yeah, totally. But things have changed dramatically, you know, since I was a kid. Just the way that parades operate and look is entirely different. So when I was a kid, you used to go to a parade. There might be 12 floats in there, some flambos, a couple of marching bands. But now when you go to watch these super crews, 
you're looking at floats with a couple of hundred riders on them, tandem floats, so two that are chained together. They might have somewhere in the neighborhood of one million LED lights on these floats. They've got moving parts, they've got fog machines. And so the question or, or what has changed since I was a kid is, well, how do you pay for something that has grown in such scale um, over time? And one of the really fascinating aspects and one of the problems that is resulting in all this waste is that Mardi Gras is the largest free and unsponsored event in the entire world. So how do you pay for this spectacle without ticket sales, or without a big bank, oil and gas company, telecom company out there footing the bill for it? Well, you pay for it by membership dues to be in these crews, um, balls and fundraisers. But more and more over the last 20 years, the way you pay for Mardi Gras to happen is by importing a lot of trinkets and throws from China, putting your crew brand on it, and putting it into a package that you sell from your leadership to the riders in the parade for about a 1,000% markup. And so these parades, these crews are very competitive. They need to get bigger and better every year. So their solution is, well, we need to throw more stuff. We need to import it, sell it, and throw more. And that's all fine and good until you reach that threshold where you're throwing so much stuff that the parade public just doesn't know what to do with it. Right. You know, it's not just a one-day event. It is 12 days that is the carnival season. And by the end of it, you've got parades Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. When, you're, when you've gone to six days of parades in a row, what are you going to do with another 12 beads and five foam footballs? The answer is you're probably just going to watch it fly through the air and then it's going to hit the ground. Yeah. Uh, real quick, uh, what's a flambeau? A flambeau. Uh, that is someone, they, they actually used to use them to help light the route along the parades because, um, you know, this history has gone back to almost before the time where we had light poles going down the street. So a flambeau is a, a person carrying a, uh, basically a kerosene lantern and with rags in it. Um, and they sort of spin it around and have a whole performance as they go down the parade route, lighting the way. I think you're now also active at other times of the year at like Jazz Fest? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Mardi Gras thing is almost year round with us now okay. working on that. But we also work with festivals to implement uh, recycling programs. Um, Jazz Fest is one of the big users of some equipment that we own where we capture aluminum cans and plastic. We work with all sorts of festivals, various sizes, because it's New Orleans. We party in this city probably per capita more than any other place in America and maybe the world. We're always having a good time here. And the emphasis on waste prevention is very low. Um, we have a long way to go in terms of improving how we party and the impact that it has on the environment. And you have a neat system where when you collect recycling, you, you're entered in a raffle for a Jazz Fest ticket or something like that? Yeah, that's one of the uh, programs that Jazz Fest is done as a recycling rewards. If you go around with a bag that you can get for free at Jazz Fest, you can actually pick up cans around the grounds and turn it in and be put into a lottery uh, or I guess a sweepstakes to get, you know, swag or a um, 
ticket, like a VIP ticket for the following year. Neat, neat. Yeah. Well, I, as always, I want to remind our listeners that uh, we'll have lots of information on the episode webpage for Brett and Grounds Crew that will give you links and information about how to volunteer, how to get involved, how to uh, participate in some of the activities that we're talking about. So what is your ultimate vision for Grounds Crew, and what do you see as some of the benchmarks you'd like to hit over the next 5, 10, even 20 years as your impact grows? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, what we're working on now is what we refer to as the local sustainable throw economy. So really, Grounds Crew, our biggest initiative right now is this sustainable throw catalog where we're selling these affordable, eco-friendly parade throws directly to the crews. And then we also sell them through our online catalog to people that ride in any parade. We really, really want to scale that and see that grow. We believe the key to making parades, carnival more sustainable is through waste prevention. It is not through repurposing and reusing the same stuff that has fallen out of favor. So our idea for the sustainable throw catalog and the local sustainable throw economy is keeping tens of millions of dollars that we spend every year on throws in Louisiana on Louisiana products and using uh, volunteers from around the city all year long to help make and assemble these throws. Everything we design and sell in the sustainable throw catalog is very easy to put together. We're talking about putting a sticker on a bag of jambalaya mix, folding it in half, stuffing it inside of a little jute bag and tying it up and doing that thousands of times. I've been uh, catching some of those last couple of years, and I, I really appreciate them, especially the, uh, the bamboo toothbrush. I just think is brilliant. So with all those things that you're developing, are there any uh, standouts in terms of promising solutions or alternatives that, that seem to be uh, getting some traction? Yeah, we have a few throws, I mean, that are very popular. We also have some things that we're working on that I think would be sort of revolutionary in terms of throws. And that, of course, means finding a biodegradable, compostable Mardi Gras bead. So the Mardi Gras bead is, you know, it's the most symbolic Mardi Gras throw. It's great. You know, people can wear it around their neck. Um, But right now it's made out of plastic and not virgin plastic. This is plastic that's been downcycled from other products that they can't find a use for. So um, finding something that is a biodegradable compostable product that could be manufactured at scale and turned into um, a bead necklace is something that we are working on. And for me, would be sort of a bucket list item to get accomplished with the nonprofit. But then further than that is if you took every plastic bead in Mardi Gras and replaced it with something that was biodegradable compostable, that might be really cool and fascinating to the public for one year. But then how do you keep them interested in that? So there's other things that we're working on, sort of the infusion of technology into our throws so that every throw that someone catches could actually have a unique value to it. Um, And, you know, we have currently used QR codes with all of our artwork on our throws. We do that because we want the public to learn, if they're curious, more about what it is that they just caught. Where did it come from? Who made it? Um, and you know why is it environmentally sensitive? So this QR code allows us to tell a pretty uh, compelling story that we can't just you know put in text on on the throw. That would never work. The other important thing that this QR code does is it allows us 
to subsidize the cost of this throw. So one of the things you have to understand and appreciate about Carnival, and one of the things that makes it incredibly, incredibly compelling and unique and beautiful, is that it is an unsponsored event. And by ordinance, nothing in a parade is allowed to convey a commercial message. That is why we don't look like the Macy's Day Parade. That is why we don't go out and catch Red Bull off the side of a float. Um, and that is one of the things that I think visitors really appreciate about this event. But that is a challenge when we're trying to promote local products. How do you, how do you tell the story of where you got this from if it's not allowed to have the Jambalaya Girl logo or Avani Soaps, you know, all these small Louisiana businesses. So that's what the QR code does. It tells that story through a web page that it's linked to. And at the very bottom of that page, after you've learned everything that's great about the throw, you see information about grounds crew sponsors, the people that are help, helping subsidize what we're doing, helping us cover the cost of the warehouse and the transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So this is actually our vision for how these parade throws are going to get cheaper over time instead of more expensive. And as they get cheaper through sponsor support, grants, philanthropy, then we can really be cost competitive with the the imported stuff. Wow, that's exciting. Well, you and I have talked before about some of the parallels with Burning Man and that decommodification, uh, no logos, no brands, anything like that is is a very interesting parallel for uh, those burners that are uh, listening out there. Uh, You and I had also uh, talked previously about the potential of bagasse, and uh, that continues to come up in some of our work at Deep Blue. Is there anything that you're seeing there in terms of the potential for uh, bagasse, the sugar sugar cane byproduct, being used to create beads or other throws? Absolutely. That's what we're working on when we talk about the compostable, biodegradable throw. We want to create something that comes from a waste product, which there are several options for that. You know, we've got glass, we've got cardboard. But this is really unique to Louisiana. The bagasse is, I think we burn somewhere in the name of like 25 million tons of it per year. So uh, if you've gone to a fancy restaurant recently and you've gotten a takeout container that felt like paper, that's made from sugarcane bagasse. And so if you can make a to-go container out of it, you can certainly make a little necklace that people wear for a little while. Um, the question, though, and the challenge is how do you manufacture something like that at scale? Um, and of course, you could go overseas to do that. But, you know, really, our vision is for trying to turn this whole industry to big ass that we're getting from Louisiana and not having to send away to then get back. So how do we manufacture that at scale in Louisiana? Yeah, well, thinking about this, the, the local issues and economic development and, and how this all relates uh, I realize that you are not necessarily focused on water or coastal issues, but there's some clear overlaps. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what the blue economy or the types of blue technologies that we talk about, what that means for in the context of ground crews work and uh, what you're doing? Well, you may have seen this article. This Something happened in 2018, which was really a defining moment in terms of the Mardi Gras waste conversation. So the city of New Orleans found 93,000 pounds of beads in our storm drain system in just five blocks along the parade route. So, you know, we're a city below sea level um, and we get a lot of flash flooding here. And to, to think that we have all of this stuff, this refuse in our storm drains that's there as a byproduct of us, of us having a party, 
and it's actually hindering our storm drain system. When they came out with that, it really sort of reframed a lot of the conversation about, you know, waste because not everything that's produced at a parade goes to the landfill. Some of it ends up in our storm drains. And so that that's important to us. Um, and when you think about how our system works here, those storm drains connect to pumps that send that water, that refuse, the microplastics that are breaking down into Lake Pontchartrain, into the Gulf of Mexico. So this is not an environmental issue that's contained to, you know, one strip three miles long through the city. This waste is ending up in our marine ecosystems. Some of our drainage pumps actually end up in the Mississippi River. And there was a scientist recently who found that some of the microplastic shards from some of these beads were actually disrupting the sediment flow along the bottom of the Mississippi River, which, you know, another interesting sort of thing you probably wouldn't have ever thought about, but um, really hits home with this idea that, you know, it's all so interconnected. Everything that we do, even if it's happening on a street in the middle of our city, is connected to the hydrology of our river, of our coast. And so those are important things to keep in mind. Absolutely. Well, in that respect, do you have any favorite or key benchmarks or statistics that you think characterize the New Orleans waste issue or else the Gulf Coast climate crisis in general? Well, I can tell you that every year through 12 days of carnival, the city produces up to 2.6 million pounds of waste. And that is not the waste that all the city produces that ends up in the landfill through parties and curbside collection. That is just what we pick up off of the street. So after Every parade that we have, this huge sanitation effort goes down with bulldozers, leaf blowers, rakes, and picks up this, I I mean, just mountains of stuff and puts it in a dump truck and drives it straight to a landfill. So that is the benchmark right there. How do we chip away at 2.6 million pounds in 12 days? None of it is recycled. Most of it is unwanted parade throws. Um, How do we start to chip away at that? That is one sort of statistic that I always use um, that kind of, you know, to impress people with what the challenge is. And it's 12 days of parades. We've got, I think, almost 35 crews that run through in in those 12 days. And again, most of what they're doing is, in a way, unofficially sponsored by disposable imported products. So what we're dealing with here is an economic challenge. How do we fund this you know huge show when it's not off the back of selling trinkets and throwing them as fast as we can you know it's it's a huge issue but yeah the the amount of waste the 93,000 pounds of beads in the storm drains those are the two that I always mention right off the bat on that subject of economic development what, what do you see as sort of the potential or the goals for how grounds crews work impacts the potential for economic development. I can tell you this, Mardi Gras, we get about a million visitors per year uh, that come to the city to enjoy Mardi Gras. There's a lot of people that it's their first exposure to the city of New Orleans. And they might have heard about Mardi Gras. They might have heard about the food, the music. They're probably not coming prepared to see the level of waste and disregard that we just casually think is normal here. So um, I've, you know, given a couple of talks to some, some, 
leaders in industry here, and I've told them, I've said, you know, this may not strike you as an important issue right off the bat, but when you think about, you know, someone coming to invest in the future of New Orleans, and their first exposure is watching people just absolutely, (laughs) totally party and disregard the local environment, and fill the streets full of unnecessary disposable plastic products and then walk away and go home, that's not a good look for our city. That, that doesn't make people take us seriously because we are a city that is threatened by climate change, by you know coastal land loss. And here we are basically supporting our biggest party with a bunch of petrochemical products that you know we just throw on the ground. So you talk a little bit about how unique Mardi Gras is, which means that it's hard to look to other cities for solutions. Can you talk a little bit uh, with regard to the larger implications of the region and and to what extent these solutions are exportable or non-exportable? Yeah, that's a good question. Because what we're doing is very unique, or the the challenge that Grounds Crew is trying to address, which is preventing waste at Carnival, Mardi Gras. There are other places around the world that celebrate Carnival in some way, um, but they do it entirely different and entirely at a, you know, a different scale than we do it here. So a lot of the work that we're trying to figure out, how do you prevent the waste? How do you come up with these products for parades is totally unique to New Orleans and totally unique to the nonprofit. So in some ways, it's really not uh, an exportable sort of commodity, what we're doing. And it's not the sort of thing where we can look to other places in the country or the world and say, well, how are they solving Mardi Gras waste over there? This is, it's unique to us. And it's probably one of the most unique forms of urban pollution. I'm talking about the, the plastic waste that these parades produce. Yeah, it, it's, it kind of leaves us on a bit of an island over here. But the alternative to or the I should say benefit to that is people are really fascinated by this issue I mean every year we have the local and national media who wants to talk about carnival and Mardi Gras and what's happening and they're aware of this waste stigma and they want to know what's being done by it and so when they go to do some research our little tiny nonprofit is the first thing that they find and so we've gotten just a ton of interest um, that we're really proud of. Great. Well, that's great to hear. And on that, I said at the beginning, we are right in the middle of the Mardi Gras season here, and uh, the parade season is is coming up quickly. What can people do to get involved to either support the organization or to actually get out there and physically help with what's going on? And how do they get in touch with you? Coming up, we have a few things. We're still selling throws through our online sustainable catalog. So we can actually still take orders almost up to the day of the parade. And you can find those throws on our website, www.groundscrew.org. And that's crew spelled with a K-R-E-W-E. Then we're also working towards a big parade recycling initiative that we're doing actually now in partnership with the city of New Orleans and New Orleans and Company and a lot of other local partners. And this is going to happen during the weekend day parades where we set up stations along the parade route to pass out free bags that the public can fill full of throws that they want to donate. We're going to have aluminum can receptacles on 40 blocks of the parade route and um, we're also going to be accepting glass. So we finally have um, some money to pay staff to do that work but we're also still recruiting volunteers to get uh, involved with that. So if you 
Google Recycled at, or you go to the Grounds Crew webpage, you'll find some information there. And I would say really for the local community, just keeping this sort of conversation relevant is important. There was actually just a, a study that was released a couple of days ago about the economic impact of Mardi Gras. And this was done by a couple of Tulane professors. And, you know, the results weren't surprising. Mardi Gras is a huge, huge um, economic boost to the city. That is why it is hosted by the city. But I, it was quite disappointing to see in this report that they were talking about all the great benefits to the local economy and waste or climate change or imported products from overseas was not mentioned one time. So I think, you know, we really have to be honest about this in our community. Yes, we love this tradition. We love Mardi Gras. It is totally unique. It is one of the most culturally important events in the entire world, but that doesn't mean we can't have conversations about how it could improve and get better and be something that this entire city is proud of. Outstanding. When you mentioned glass, I understand you're working with uh, Glass Half Full, which is the local startup that's turning recycled glass into sand, actually for coastal restoration, right? Yeah, they're going to be one of the station leaders for our Recycled At program. We also host an eco happy hour with them once a month called Green Drinks. Yeah, there's a, there's a synergy around young environmentalist groups and and envi- I should say environmentally focused groups in New Orleans. Um, that I feel like, you know, we didn't have uh, post-Katrina, we didn't even really have it pre-COVID, but I feel like that that it's starting to come back, and we really need that because, you know, there's a lot of issues facing our city, our community, our country, our world, and the only way to get at these is through, you know, one step at a time through these grassroots organizations. Absolutely. Well, uh, again, we'll have information on your podcast episode page about how people can get involved, how they get in touch and and sign up to help out and also to, to support your, your great work. So what's next for you, Brett? What are you most excited about in your personal or professional journey as you continue with this work? Ooh, that's a tough one. You know, I, I don't know. I, I just want to do something that is fulfilling. Um, it's, it's really challenging work. So, you know, I, I have a few objectives in terms of what are going to be the things that I need to accomplish before I feel like I can step away from this nonprofit that I started. Um, definitely finding a space that um, we can invite these huge volunteer groups, school groups to come to year round to help assemble these throws that we make. Um, a venue space with a storage space that would be uh, a big one and then working on this biodegradable bead idea getting that you know out in the wild to show people that there is an alternative to what we're currently using and then beyond that who knows i mean every day it's it's something new (laughs) but taking it one step at a time Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It really has been a tremendous pleasure. I just, I'm, I'm proud as a New Orleanian of what you're doing, and it's such important work. And it's a pleasure to have you here to hopefully get a little bit more exposure and uh, promote what you're doing out there because it's, it's pretty critical work. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's an honor to be on the Blue Economy Primer. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word. And be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy, where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics, get more information about our community engagement initiatives, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much-appreciated tax-deductible donation 
to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy.